Now the next um, paragraph in the Sutta is the contemplation of the body concerned with mindfulness of breathing. Anapanasati, our meditation method. Now see how it is um, described here. And how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating the body as a body? Here a bhikkhu, gone to the forest, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down. Having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect, established mindfulness on the breath in front of him, always mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Now we are confronted with the sentence of contemplating the body as a body, which is often misunderstood. It's actually very simple. It just means that one remains mindful and attentive of the fact that we are on the body and don't use the mind to go somewhere else. At least in this moment here it means that. It's interesting to read to the root of a tree Anyone who's been to India has seen those um, buttress roots. They are so large that they actually can be like little walls, and you can sit in the middle of them as if it was as if you were sitting in a little room, and the tree itself will be your roof. It doesn't completely shelter you from the uh, rain or the wind, but it's certainly like being inside of a little shelter. It's not just a root of a tree, but it is a buttress root, at least this high. You see them in Sri Lanka, you see them in India. You seen them there in India? Yes. Um, they're quite amazing. You can see them actually in Australia. I have recently seen them in Norfolk Island. Uh, some buttress roots like that. And um, very often a particular uh, tree, I have seen them on the tree of the... Um, uh, yes, that's right, the modern basic tree. Uh, but not always, not always, but sometimes. Anyway, in India they're very common, and that's what's meant with sitting at the root of a tree not just sitting at the root, at the bottom of a tree, but sitting within the, these um, uh, buttress roots. Empty hut is obvious. Folding one's legs, well, that's obvious, crosswise. It doesn't say anything about lotus feet either. It's just sitting, says sitting crosswise. <laughs> Sometimes the uh, um, idea in people's minds has been that you can't meditate unless you sit in either full or half lotus. Um, sitting, setting the body erect, well, yes, keeping the back straight, and then establishing mindfulness of the breath or on the breath in front of him, always mindful, breathing in, breathing out. Well, the mindfulness in front of one is because the breath appears to be there, but it doesn't just necessarily mean that. I think it means in front of the mind in front of all other things, surpassing all other things. Because if you're thinking of establishing mindfulness in front of you, you get the idea that you've got to put it here somewhere. Well, that's not the idea at all. It's, it's a priority. 
in front of all other things. Breathing in long, he understands I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he understands I breathe out long. Now this particular sentence gives rise to the greatest misunderstandings, and particularly the word understand in this sentence. Because if the word understand were to be substituted with the word being mindful of, I think it would be much easier to understand. Breathing in long, one is mindful, or he is mindful, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he is mindful of I breathe out long. In other words, it isn't telling oneself, oh, well, that's a long breath and that's a short one, and that's a good one, that's a bad one, and this one should be deeper and this one is very um, shallow. It isn't that at all. It's just being mindful of that whole breath. Whether it's long or short doesn't make any difference. It's not a description that one gives to oneself because that means the mind starts chattering again. Is that clear? It's quite an important point because it's very often misunderstood when people know the sutta or read the sutta. Breathing in short, he understands I breathe in short. Breathing out short, he understands I breathe out short. Well, that's the same thing again. One knows the breath as it is. Knowing the breath as it is. It also means that we do not attempt to manipulate the breath in any way. That also happens to some people particularly to beginners when they first start meditating they're a bit tense about the whole matter and they want to do very well you know this kind of achievement syndrome I'm going to do this right and um, because of the tension and the wanting to do it right and perfectly sometimes they feel themselves inclined without really wanting to to manipulate the breath they want to make it deep so they can feel it and that type of thing well this is counterproductive. We know the breath as it is. Whatever it is, we know it as it is. Right? So he trains us. I shall breathe in experiencing a whole body. He trains us. I shall breathe out experiencing a whole body. Well, sometimes this is um, understood as saying the whole breath body. And it would stand to reason that this would mean that the experiences of the breath as it enters the body and one follows it through and then coming out again. In other words, not just at the nostrils, but following it in and following it out. These are choices, alternatives. It's not necessarily... Um, so that one is better than the other, it just is a possibility of doing one or the other. However, sometimes it is also considered to mean that while breathing in, the sensations of the body are, are experienced. Instead of the breath as such, possibly uh, what I give you as an alternative, as a fourth possibility 
to breathe in and watching the breath all the way as wherever you become aware of the sensation and then watching it going down, maybe lungs expanding, going down <clears throat> even as far as the stomach coming out, experiencing the uh, sensation. And the same in and out, of course. And he trains us. I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the body process. He trains us. I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the bodily process. The bodily process that is being tranquilized has to be, at this point, the breath. Now, again, it's not a matter of doing anything about the breath. But as the mind remains tranquil, the breath follows suit. This is why the breath is such a um, very useful meditation subject, because breath and mind are intrinsically connected. When the mind becomes tranquil, the breath does too, and vice versa. When the mind is upset or um, anxious, or in a hurry, the breath does the same. It becomes um, quick or it becomes quite um, uh, deep. So here we have breathing in, tranquilizing the bodily process, breathing out, tranquilizing the bodily process, which means that with the mind becoming tranquil, the breath does too. And then the uh, uh, simile the Buddha gives is one which gives us a bit of an insight into the way things were in his day. Just as a skilled turner or his apprentice, when making a long turn, understands I make a long turn, or when making a short turn, understands I make a short turn, so too breathing in long, he understands I breathe in long, he trains us, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the bodily process. Uh, the little dots, they mean that the whole thing is being repeated, but in the uh, English translation, the whole thing is not being repeated because it's too repetitive. Um, again, I like to emphasize that the word understanding does not mean that one now tells oneself I've had a long breath or a short breath. It just means that one is following the breath as it is and becomes aware of it as it is. Because if we start telling ourselves, this is long, this is short, we will be totally distracted. Now, this is obviously geared towards calm. And this is a very important distinction which every meditator has to make between calm and insight. Now, all of those, all of you who have been in my courses have heard me give that distinction uh, many times. I just briefly delineate it again. Calm means that we are staying on the breath and are eventually getting to the meditative absorption. When the mind has stayed on the meditation subject long enough, it will absorb into it and then into its own inner being. This is what this is all about, the first, this paragraph. Now, before I go on to the next one, are there any question about this paragraph? Could you just repeat that last 
Start again. That we said calm means we're staying on the breath, and then the mind absorbs into it. Into the meditation subject. In other words, the mind becomes so concentrated that at that point, mind and breath are no longer separated. They appear to become one. And at that time, we can then dispense with the meditation subject because the mind is able to turn inward and experience inwardly. We'll come to more explanations about that in due course. Other suttas are concerned with the meditative absorptions. This particular one is concerned with being very mindful, which can get you there. Again? Yes. Yes. All the suttas are this specific. But they only become that specific when you really um, analyze each sentence. If you just read over it and uh, and then put it away, nothing much usually happens in the mind. You have to really get into every sentence and see what is meant. Yes, also does all that specific. The Buddha usually, um, oh well, somebody is more specific. I just picked one up here. <laughs> um, usually, the Buddha talks about practice, how to do it, again and again. And to do what? To become enlightened, of course. What else? <laughs> okay, now we come to the next one, which has already the heading of insight. Um, so we are, we are concerned with actually doing both. When watching the breath, obviously, when we can stay on the breath, we will work towards calm. But there are times... And the mind just doesn't want to stay on the breath and be calm. Uh, we have other choices to go towards inside. And we'll read first what it says here. Now, in this way, he abides contemplating the body as a body in himself, or he abides contemplating the body as a body externally, or he abides contemplating the body in himself and externally. Well, Contemplating the body as a body in himself has actually two um, meanings. First of all, it means that one contemplates one's own body. Um, in this case, we are contemplating or we are putting attention on the breath, which is part of body. But it, in this way also, it, we can uh, refer back to the first foundation of mindfulness, which is, which is body. So contemplating body as a body in himself is that contemplation which we talked about, watching our own movements. It also has a meaning that we are contemplating the body as just a body and not me. And also that we're contemplating it as being energized by mind. We can see quite clearly that this body needs mind to give it directions when we become uh, quiet and watchful of bodily action. So as a body in itself or as a body in himself,
ourselves in himself our own body. Is that quite clear, those two aspects? Right. Or he abides contemplating as the body as a body externally. Now that could could be that we contemplate other bodies. Now, obviously, we're not going to start contemplating somebody else's uh, movements. That wouldn't be very wise. But there are innumerable numbers of bodies outside of ourselves. There are birds, there are trees, there are bushes, there are seers. All that is body. Now, when we see the word body in English, we're thinking of a human body or maybe an animal body. But in Pali, the word is rupa, and it means materiality, corporality, everything that is material. So we have a bit of a um, wider choice there. So if, for instance, we are outside and we could look at a tree and instead of admiring its size or contemplating its name, we could see that it has the same aspect of impermanence that we ourselves have. And we could see dead leaves and live leaves, and we could see its growth and its decay all in the same tree. So that would be a body externally. If we look at birds, instead of admiring their beautiful colored feathers, which is what we usually do, we could also see their fear and their aggressiveness. How they're aggressive towards each other and how they're afraid of each other. And we may be able to refer by seeing that to the human condition or to the existential condition. So if we see things a little more as they really are, they will help us to see ourselves a little more as they really are. As we look outside of ourselves, we have a help and a, a support situation for what's going on inside of ourselves. This is just examples for bird and trees. There are many other things that can be uh, seen outside other than admiring the beauty of it. Admiring the beauty of it is dangerous because it gives us again and again the uh, idea, which we have anyway, that if we just handled it a little bit better, this world would be perfectly all right. And it counteracts the uh, basic understanding of dukkha. So it doesn't mean that we can't enjoy beauty when it's there, but it means that we should look at materiality outside of ourselves in the manner of in this case, let's say, impermanence. So that's bodies externally. Or he abides contemplating the body in himself and externally, so you do both. And that, I would say, would be the most uh, useful thing to do, that we are uh, attentive to our own movements, to our own bodily actions, to our own... Um, bodily processes and um, add to that the contemplation and the attention to that what's outside of ourselves. 
we can, uh, well, well, that comes later, I won't, uh, I won't say that now, it comes later. Or else he abides contemplating in the body its arising factors, or abides contemplating in the body its vanishing factors, or he abides contemplating in the body its arising and vanishing factors. This particular um, paragraph has given rise to the meditation technique of rise and fall of the abdomen. This is uh, the paragraph that has given rise to that, I, that particular meditation technique. Um, it's, uh, basically, it doesn't matter what technique we use as long as we get there. A technique is nothing but a technique. It never is a real thing. Method is method by any name. So what we are contemplating here is not so much that we're now changing our meditation technique to rise and fall of the abdomen at all, not, nothing like it. But what we are concerned with is impermanence. This is the inside, the paragraph on inside. So we're concerned with impermanence. So the bodily factors which we are aware of is definitely the breath. And as I said before, when our mind doesn't wish to become calm, we have the choice to direct it towards inside. Our mind sometimes just doesn't want to be calm. Sometimes it feels as if there's a bit of a short circuit going on. It just doesn't wish to stay calm. So instead of then telling oneself um, stories, as the mind likes to do, we go to the um, fact of the breath, which is, in, finished, out, finished, never the same twice in a row. Although it appears to be identical and there is continuity, we constantly overlook its impermanence. And when we actually put full attention on the impermanence of the breath, we become aware of the fact that our whole life depends on such an impermanent bodily action that it may give rise to an understanding that there's nothing solid to be found anywhere. So the arising and falling, or arising and vanishing, arise and cease, we often say, factor, is the first one is, of course, the easiest thing. But we can see arise and cease also physically in the uh, heartbeat, in the blood circulation, in eating and excreting, and uh, blinking our eyes. Many bodily factors can be surveyed and contemplated as being constant movement. Now, if we become more concentrated, we also have the opportunity to notice a constant movement in the body which has nothing to do with an outer movement, it's an inner movement, which has the quality of contraction and expansion. But it's so su subtle that it needs a fair bit of mindfulness to become aware of it. Now when we get to that point, realizing that, through, con through our mind being very one-pointed, we have come to an actual understanding of the nature of corporality. Because this feels so solid, 
we can touch it, it feels solid. We have that mistaken illusion that this is solid, but it isn't. It's a constant movement within it. So that's another arising and ceasing factor which we can become aware of. We start, of course, becoming aware of the arising and ceasing of the breath. Is that quite clear? Any question on that? Very important point. All clear. Wonderful. Or else, mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in him to the extent of bare knowledge and remembrance of it, while he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. There is a body. Again, this is a mindfulness which... um, electronics engineer has worked. <laughs> um, objective mindfulness, bare mindfulness, just seeing the body as a body, again as I said, not mine, and remembering that which makes one less clinging to this body. This actually assumes that one stops clinging to anything in the world. However, that's only true during the time of that mindfulness. Now, if the mind is very attentive to the fact there is a body, but why do I call it me, and is really concerned with that, there's no clinging to anything else. Because everything else is at that time not even considered. So there's no clinging to anything in the world. The more more often we do this, the less clinging we become. The mind becomes much more habitualized towards those states. The less clinging we are, the less problems we have. The more we cling, the more problems we have. So, one becomes independent, it says here. Now, independence is the crux of the matter in the whole of the practice. One has to become independent uh, in one's own practice also, independent of the teacher, and in the last analysis, independent of the teaching. But that may take a little while. That's at the end. So this mindfulness is all concerned with insight, and in the first instance with the impermanence, and in the second instance, with the fact that there is just a body and nobody sitting there owning it. This is how Biko abides contemplating the body as a body. Is all quite clear? Any question on this? Yes. On contemplating the body as a body, Body they're looking at, in other words, 
a very good results. One is the uninterrupted mind one-pointedness, one-pointedness of mind, where we don't have to re-establish it every time we want to sit down and meditate, but have it already established. And the other very good result of it is also that we become introspective. We're watching ourselves so that we can do that in daily life. And the next paragraph repeats the previous one, so we don't have to go through that again. As I told you before, the Buddhist discourses are extremely repetitive for the simple reason that he realized that people have a hard time listening and taking it in. And since there were no books such as these, he had to repeat it to make them understand it properly. So that's just a repetition. The next one is number seven of the repetition. So this, I think, is quite clear bodily actions. Now, the next one, full awareness. Again, we are concerned with our bodily actions. Again, a bhikkhu is one who acts in full awareness when moving to and fro, when looking at and away, who acts in full awareness when what happened here? Extending. Flexing. Flexing and extending. Flexing and extending. Who acts in full awareness when wearing the patched cloak. That's the outer robe. Bowl and robe, that's the other, the under robe. Who acts in full awareness when feeding, drinking, chewing and supping. Who acts in full awareness when evacuating the bowels and making water who acts in full awareness and walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silence. These are all possibilities or um, guidelines when and how to be mindful constantly. Buddha tries to mention everything that um, can happen. Flexing and extending is the arms, putting them like this and extending them. And um, when one looks, when one um, moves, when one wears one's clothes, one's clothes, when eating, drinking, chewing, swallowing, going to the toilet, walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, mindfully falling asleep. That's not easy. You can try it tonight. It's, uh, it takes determination to realize, now I'm awake, now I'm letting the mind rest, closing the eyes completely, and letting sleep overtake me. Now, that's not an easy thing to be mindful of. It would, it's very helpful and very useful to try it. You can try that, huh? Talking and keeping silent, to be aware of that. And again, the repetition of the previous one, the inside one. The repetition is also done of the inside paragraph because the awareness of posture and the awareness of movement brings insight. The insight which arises is, first of all, the insight into impermanence. Every movement has to be impermanent. There is no movement that cannot be impermanent. 
impossible. And this impermanence will eventually so um, imbue us with this understanding that with its understanding that we no longer have that feeling of solidity about ourselves. The feeling of solidity which we have about ourselves is one of the greatest um, reasons for our clinging, our attachments, and our desires. Because we have this feeling of solidity and permanence, so we've got to do something about this solid, permanent person. But there is no solid, permanent person. And the more we become aware of our physical movements, which are so impermanent, our breath, which is so impermanent, and watching these um, very one-pointedly, the less of that solidity remains. And also, because of the fact that we can watch the body impersonally, objectively, we can get a little bit more of a perspective on it, less of the me idea. This is me. It's just the body. The body never has said that it's me. It's always the mind that said it's me. But he never said a word about anything. It's just there. <laughs> now we come to another, uh, totally different a type of uh, meditation, which is not attention on the breath. And again and again, please remember, me- these are methods. And all these meditation methods have only two pathways, calm and insight. And both of them have only one result, and that's liberation. So method is method by any name. Now the the one that we're used to calm was watching the breath, as you know, and being very attentive to it. Now come the insight methods, which are movement of body. Here we have foulness of the bodily parts. Again, a bhikkhu reviews the bo- this same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair as full of many kinds of filth. Thus, in this body there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth and skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, midriff, spleen, lungs, bowels, entrails, gorge, dung, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittles, not oil of the joints, and urine. Chant also, which we used to chant. Just as though there were a bag with an opening at both ends, full of many sorts of grains, such as hill rice, red rice, beans, peas, millet, and white rice, and a man with clear eyes had opened it, and were reviewing it thus, this is hill rice, red rice, beans, peas, millet, white rice, so too a bhikkhu reviews this same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair. Uh, this is a, a method which I have sometimes um, advocated also in the courses. And uh, the way I have described it is this. You can pretend you've got a zipper in front of your body here. 
and you take out all the bits and pieces and lay them in front of you. Now, we don't have to remember all of these bits and pieces. Everybody knows approximately what's inside. And then, as you have put them out in front of you, then look at them and see which one is me. Obviously, none of them, nobody wants to be me in all that mess. Uh, <laughs> and we know very well what it looks like. So then, after you've done that, one can take the uh, remaining skeleton and put that out in front in bits and pieces and see whether that's me. And having decided that none of that is me, well, you can put it nicely back together again and put it back inside. Um, as it becomes back inside, all in its place and functioning again, as good as it can, then it all of a sudden is called me. Now that gives pause to think. And this is a very useful and helpful inside meditation method. And everybody should, at one time or another, do it. Don't have to do it every day, just once or twice will be fine. It certainly changes one's viewpoint of oneself. See, one of the things which weren't possible in the days of the Buddha, which I get take great delight in, in remembering and talking about, is the fact that we can now put in spare parts. And uh, before they're put in, they're obviously not mine. I mean, they belong either to somebody else or they belong to the surgeon or the hospital or they're sitting in a, in a glass bowl with uh, some uh, liquid in it. And then after it's been put in there, well, then all of a sudden it's me, part of me, you know, whatever it may be, kidney or even heart or whatever it is that gets to be put in there. So it's very interesting to have the... Uh, Confirmation of the Buddha's um, um, way of looking at the body now even strengthened with the fact that spare parts are available for us. So this particular way of doing it, this is um, a very um, well-known method. Uh, as I say, we even chant it. And uh, although sometimes when you chant things like that, the uh, impact of it gets lost because you've got to remember the words. So the impact of the actual um, investigation gets lost. But it's a very useful thing to do that, for, but only for one's own body, please, not somebody else's. Because it does um, entail sometimes a feeling of dislike for all that mess that's in there. However, we usually have enough um, self-identification um, so that this dislike is counteracted. Uh, it should never result in any dislike. What it's supposed to do, it's supposed to counteract our great attachment to ourselves, our exaggerated self-indulgence um, for this body. That's supposed to counteract that, but it's not supposed to go overboard on the other side where it then results in a, a dislike or a negativity. It's supposed to get us on the middle. The Buddha's teaching is called the middle path. It's supposed to stay in the middle. So you can try it, huh?
Again, we have the repetition of the inside um, paragraph, which I have already explained why it's being repeated. Huh? And now we come to the elements. And here we have a very interesting and very important aspect also of inside meditation, of inside understanding. I'll read it and then uh, say something about it. Again, however it is placed, however disposed, a Biko reviews this same body consisting of elements thus. In this body there are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. Just as though a skilled butcher or his apprentice had, a ki had killed a cow and was, they were seated at the four crossroads with it cut up into pieces, so too, however it is placed, however disposed, that Biko reviews this same body as to its elements. Now, this is an important aspect of external and internal. And sometimes this sort of thing arises spontaneously. Other times, you'll have to arouse it, and just make a determination to uh, meditate in that manner. There are the four elements, the four primary elements, and every corporality, everything that's corporal, material, consists of those four elements. And it helps us to reduce our me illusion to this body and our great um, care and concern with this body when we become aware of the fact that these four elements are within us and without. No difference. First thing that we look at is the earth element. Now the earth element is everything that's solidity. The bones, the flesh, everything that can be touched, all that is earth element. Wherever there's any solidity, that's earth. Now when you look at earth outside, you see solidity. When you look at the tree, you see solidity. At a leaf, at a bird, at grass, wherever you look, whatever you can see, you will see that there is some solidity in it, otherwise you wouldn't be able to see it. And when we can, in a meditative state, in a very concentrated state, see ourselves no different from that which is around us and surrounding us, we lose that some of our separation and individual, individual identity process which brings with it that me illusion. So as we lose some of that, becomes more and more possible to see ourselves within the whole of existence. Possibly the uh, easiest one to become aware of. Next one is the water element. Now obviously there's water within us. Saliva, blood, sweat, tears. But water is also the binding element. When you have flour and you put some water in it, you get dough. Now, everything that we see as an individual entity is so because its cells are bound together. 
we didn't have the water element, and we do consist to the greatest part of water, as you all know. If we didn't have that, all our cells would walk around separately. We'd look a bit funny, but we wouldn't have so much of that me illusion possibly. It might, facil we might have facilitated matters, but that such it isn't, it isn't the way of nature, but we can see the water element in everything outside of ourselves also. There is the binding element, but also, for instance, there's sap in the tree, there's dew on the ground, there's uh, water in the creek. We can see water element wherever we look. And within each leaf or stalk, we can found, find liquid. So again, we have that possibility of relating to external nature as being a part of it, not separate from it. Now that doesn't mean that we now think nature is more beautiful or anything like that. It just means that we're losing this feeling of insecurity being one tiny individual within such a vast universe which seems to be so different from us ourselves. It isn't. It's all one, the whole thing. But it doesn't have to be believed, it has to be experienced. The next uh, one of these four elements is the fire element. Now, fire element means temperature. And if we are even just touching ourselves, or if we just feel ourselves, we know there's a certain temperature in the body. If we touch anything, the cushion, the uh, floor, any uh, material thing, it all has a temperature in it. And um, we can do that outside. We can touch earth. We can touch a tree. We can feel the sun as the fire element, as the temperature or the shade. We can feel different temperature at different times of the day. All of it is part of this whole uh, natural environment in which we live, which extends into the universe, which we can't experience just through our uh, senses, but which we can become aware of through the meditative process. And the last one is the air element or wind element. Now, air and wind element also denote movement, and obviously the breath is air or wind. And there are the winds in the body. There's movement. The blood moves, the heart moves. The body moves, the cells move. If the cells were not moving, even though we are not aware of it possibly, we'd never grow older. They're constantly moving. And we can see the movement outside in the wind, in the clouds, in the leaves. This movement is easy to see, but we can also see it in the growth of the tree. That's also movement, the growth. So if we do that, not just 
in the way I'm describing it now, which is from an uh, knowing, but from an experiencing standpoint, which we can do when we're in a meditative um, frame of mind, it will change our perception. And this is what these, all these um, insight methods are designed for, to change our perception of what and who we are and of what the universe around us is, and also where the values lie, to change our perception. Because the perceptions which we have are usually, first of all, habitual, secondly, um, ingrained from our environment, from our human environment in which we grow up, through what we have learned, and does not, is not based, this perception is not based on things as they really are. This, the, all these methods can help us to see things differently. Now these four elements are again another way of analyzing ourselves, making ourselves divided into different parts which is one way the Buddha used very frequently to the way of analysis of division so that we stop seeing the whole because the whole is always concerned with the habitual way of seeing it and start seeing its parts. So here we see ourselves as elements, the four primary elements, the very um, useful and worthwhile insight method, um, method of insight meditation. All of it gives one different ways of leading towards the same thing. So there's the analysis and the um, cutting up into different parts of the body as the insides of our uh, insides of the body, then the elements and also our movements. All of it takes care, takes care to be one pointed towards only a part of ourselves, not seeing ourselves as a whole. The Buddha compared that to the way we look at a cart. Now, in his day, there weren't any motor cars, so they were using carts, ox carts. And we look at it and we say, ah, oh, this is a cart. And we might even say it's a nice cart or it's an ugly cart or it's an old one or it's a new one. But in reality, there are wheels and an axle. And there's a flo there are floorboards and maybe a brake. And there are uh, side uh, sideboards. And all of it together, if you put it down lying in front of you, you'd never call it a cart. You'd always call it wheels and an axle and floorboards and so on. But when it's put together, it's called a cart. It's the same with this. If you got it all in bits and pieces, you'd never call it me. But when it's all put together and functioning as it should, then you call it me. And this is the... Um, inside way of trying to find a new perception through analysis.
going to take us three weeks to go through this. Anyway, that's enough for this evening. Um, any questions? Oh, it's just The identity of me, which we supposedly need in the world to function, is public and private enemy number one. It's a cause for every problem. The Buddha functioned extremely well in the world, and um, so did his enlightened disciples. And so do the enlightened ones of this day. You function extremely well because it doesn't matter anymore. You do it because it needs to be done, but not because a result has to be attained. And that's the whole difference between having it nice and easy or tension and uh, achievement. It gets done because it needs to be done, but that's all. So it's quite possible to function in the world. I don't say that it's possible to be um, a minor executive in a multinational company. I don't think that would work very well, um, but, uh, or even a major executive. Um, I would say that it's possible to function in the world, yes but not along the lines of um, making a lot of money. That might not function too well. I think they need a fair sense of ego to do that. But I dare say a person who doesn't have the sense of me wouldn't be after making a lot of money. So they'd be quite happily functioning. doesn't take any conviction at all, takes experience. Yeah. The conviction doesn't do any good. You see, there are many, many people, many, thousands, thousands, who have read the Buddha's words, backward, forward, sideways, and believe every word of it, and haven't experienced anything. Well, they can't get rid of the me. They're totally convinced, but they haven't experienced it. So the conviction itself can be very helpful. In fact, it's very, very needed in order to practice with total commitment. But it doesn't relieve one of the me illusion. Well, most people don't practice properly. <laughs> There are steps on the way, many steps on the way, and each step follows the next one. It's um, a cause and effect.
That wouldn't have been me, I can assure you. <laughs> it would not have been me saying that. Well, first of all, how many Buddhists have been practicing in that time? <laughs> oh, there are even more Christians. And? What does that mean? Mean anything? No. You see, what you're at the moment beset with is the fifth hindrance. That's skeptical doubt. Vichikicha. That's quite all right. It's part of the human... Uh, misery and uh, <laughs> and uh, it does uh, um, it does um, get totally eliminated only at the first stage of um, the first step into enlightenment stream entry however it gets um, so um, uh, limited it becomes so limited so small that it doesn't bother one anymore when one continues to sit again and again and again. And when and the last when then with that sitting comes uh, some uh, result. And then that gets so the skeptical doubt becomes so small that it's no longer a hindrance. Total elimination is only when one has actually attained the fruit of that practice for the first time. But um, um, not to worry about it, it is one of our human dilemmas. There are five of those that the Buddha explained and this is number five. <laughs> and uh, they uh, naturally it arises because everybody else is doing something else, isn't it? <laughs> so how could they all be wrong and we are right, huh? <laughs> Anything else? Yes. Um, you said about the elephant is there being into movements both on the gross and in the level of mind. Like when one is giving attention to the breath to become not separate from, from the breath but when the attention is really given to become one with the movement Well, that's mental movement. Right. Desire is mental movement. Could you explain where I'm getting to? Well, I've just been introduced to this. It's very Yeah, I know you haven't had this before. <laughs> um, the, um, the four elements which the Buddha talks about here in this particular sutta are strictly corporal material. They're the four material elements. They are joined then with um, two immaterial or um, yes, immaterial elements, which are consciousness and space. But they are not concerned in this sutta. He's not concerned with them. Talking about um, the uh, material ones, the corporal ones, because he's talking about attention to the body. 
So what we're looking at here as uh, movement is a physical movement. As the breath goes in and out, as the heart beats, as the blood goes around, pulse beats, and um, also physical movement, um, particularly the winds of the body which are also moving. So the elements have um, a quality and an action, but they're all physical. Well, the quality, for instance, of the fire element would be warm or cold, so it would be warming or cooling. Yeah. Right? So the quality of the earth element uh, it's, it's, it's solid, and uh, the, uh, the activity is that it has the uh, touching. touching. So they, they're all physical, all of them. So there's no, the desire is mental. Yes, certainly, because the mind uh, directs the body. So when the mind gets desiring of something, it tells the body go and get get it. So the body goes and gets it. Oh, whether there's desire in that? Yeah. yeah well, the whole of existence is linked to the the uh, craving to be. That's why it exists. That's its underlying cause for being. But that has nothing to do with wind element. Uh, that's what I'm trying to unite. I'm trying to unite um, this idea of, of, of air being movement. And what one would perceive this movement. And we just come and marry the two together. Yeah, well, you have to keep the corporality apart from mentality. Nama Rupa, mentality and corporality. See, we are always um, translating as mind and body, which is fine, but sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes it has to be called mentality and corporality, because not always a body. Yeah. I mean, you don't call a tree a body. Yeah. Mm. There is obviously some link between it. One, when it is a particularly windy day, one, one does notice movement in mind too, irrespective of, uh, of, of the energy outside. There is an effect in mind. So you mean that the mind is affected by the movement, by it's very windy? Versa, yeah. Yes. Uh, yes, of course. But a mind which is totally at ease or totally... Um, one point it may not be affected by the wind. And one that's not, that's very, a mind which is very weak may become frightened. And there's a big storm or something like that. So outer conditions do not uh, present itself to the mind in the same way. The mind does not react. I mean, all minds don't react in the same way. But here we are con- con- only concerned with corporality at this point, with the elements. It's total, total corporality. There's one other thing. One other thing I wanted to say, which I didn't, that all the elements, all four, each one contains the other three. Like, for instance, in water, 
there is earth element, the solidity. Otherwise, the uh, fish couldn't swim, the boat couldn't go over it, right? In air, there's solidity, the earth element. Otherwise, we couldn't, couldn't fly, birds couldn't fly, and so forth. Each one contains the other. Obviously, they all contain temperature. And uh, so um, everything that exists as a corporal thing has those elements. pointer about the meditation the best way to do inside meditation is after calm calm first then inside if the mind obeys what it's supposed to be doing to get calm first then to do an inside meditation afterwards can be extremely uh, impressive to the mind because at the time when the mind has really become calm or has had a meditative frame of mind. It is far more impressionable and far less resisting. It is unconcerned with its habitual pathways of thought and therefore able to accept something which is opposing those habitual ways of thought. So if one can do calm first and inside after, it can be extremely helpful. And please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Think of yourself as your own best friend, the one to rely on. To give you happiness, peacefulness, and joy. Feel yourself. peacefulness and joy surround yourself with love as a best friend would have
think of yourself as the best friend of the person sitting nearest you. Fill him or her with feelings of sincere and deep friendship, care and concern. Surround him or her with love. Think of yourself as the best friend of everyone here. Let your feelings of friendship reach out to everyone. Fill everyone with your care and concern. feeling of togetherness, helpfulness, and surround everyone with love. Think of yourself as the best friend of your parents. Reach out to them with your care and concern, your helpfulness. And your feelings of deep and committed friendship and surround them with love.
think of yourself as the best friend of those who are nearest and dearest to you. Fill them with your sincere friendship, your helpfulness, care, concern. Embrace them with love. Think of all your good friends. Be their best friend. Have a feeling of commitment and care for them. Being available for them. wanting to give them the best that you have. Think of yourself as the best friend of your neighbors, the people you work with, those whom you meet on the street, in the shops, in offices. Let a feeling of committed friendship, sincere care, arrive in you and reach out to all these people, filling them and surrounding them.
if there's anyone in your life whom you find difficult, become that person's best friend too, ready to help, to care, and to love. Think of all those people whose lives are far more difficult than ours. In hospital, in prison, in refugee camps. Hungry, crippled. Without friends without shelter, be their best friend, reach out to them, wherever they may be, wherever you can think of them, filling them with your loving friendship your willingness to help, your care. Giving them hope. Now put your attention back on yourself. Resolve to be your own best friend, the one to rely on. The one who knows 
what is best for you. Who's caring and concerned. wisdom to know how to protect your own happiness. filled with this caring and surrounded by love. May all beings be friends with each other. <laughs> 